And as the kids are making their way out there, I just want to again, as you already know, this is Labor Day weekend where we celebrate those who labor on our behalf and on our own, our own ability to work as well. And what I want to do this morning is just, uh, we're going to talk about work. We're going to talk about our labors. But a typical day for us may look something like this. We get up in the morning, the alarm goes off. Most likely, if you're like me, it's way too early, but the alarm goes off anyways. We get out of bed, we get ready for the day, maybe a quick breakfast, a cup of coffee, and we're off to the office. Some of you are going to stay home and work taking care of the kids, cleaning the house, doing laundry, shopping, preparing meals. Some of you will travel great distances for your work. Others will stay and work right out of your homes. At the end of the day, there is work to be done around the house, things to repair, lawns to be mowed, car cha- cars need oil changes. Saturday finally comes, and what's that mean? This means there's time to work on bigger things around the house, bigger projects around the house. Life is nothing but work, work, and more work, it seems. Last week, Derek got up here and did a wonderful job talking to us about rest and the Sabbath. And he, he mentioned in that, at the beginning of his message, that he and I, well, Matthew is on vacation, are going to be playing what Derek called good cop, bad cop. And he implied that he was the good guy because he got to talk to you about rest, that I was going to be the bad guy because I had to talk to you about work. Well, I'm gonna, I am going to talk about work this morning, but I, my hope, my prayer is that by the end of this morning, you will not see work as a bad thing or an evil thing, but rather, it's a good thing. We'll see work as something good. It's rewarding. And by working, we fulfill part of what it means to be created in the image of God. So let's pray. Lord, as we come into this morning, Lord, we are well aware of our failings. And what we need more than anything is for your Holy Spirit to come and to speak to us. To provide clarity and insight into our lives through your word. And as we look at work, Lord, it can be overwhelming. We can feel overwhelmed at the end of the day or the end of a week. But Lord, help us to see that work is a blessing. It's a gift from you. It's what we've been created to do. But Lord, may we never lose sight of the fact that our standing before you, our being justified, forgiven, is based on your work and your work alone, not ours. This morning, Lord, come. Speak to us through your word. Encourage us that we might go and work for your pleasure and see it as a blessing to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning we're going to look at work, and I've got three points. The first one will be the origin of work. We'll talk about the dignity of work. And then finally we're going to conclude with taking a look at work and our relationship with God through work. So the origin of work. Let's open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going, to op- we're going to look at a number of verses this morning, um, but we're going to begin at the very beginning. Last week, Derek opened up Scripture to us and began at Genesis chapter 1, and that's where we're going to begin this morning. So Genesis 1, verse 1. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A passage that we're all very familiar with. Let me paraphrase for that for you. In the beginning, God put on his work clothes, pulled on his boots, some heavy work gloves, put on his hard hat, and set about the work of creating the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God worked. The idea of work is introduced to us in Scripture from very early on. A number of theological doctrines find their their root or their origin here in in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I believe that the doctrine of work is one of those. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The act of creating is work. God worked to create the heavens and the earth. And the rest of the creation story in Genesis 1 and and 2 just simply describes in further detail for us God's creative work. By the time we get to Genesis 2-2, we are told that God rested from all of the work that he had done in creation. God is a God who works, and it took his creative work to bring about the heavens and the earth. So work is not some necessary evil or something that God delegated to humans. No, from the very beginning words of the Bible, we see God himself, God himself working and taking joy in it. Work cannot cannot have a more noble origin, a more exalted origin, because work finds its itself finds its origins in God. So work, while work, um, while God's work as creator ends early on in Genesis, God continues to work on behalf of his creation. God creates Adam. He plants a garden for, for Adam, waters the garden. He creates a wife for Adam. So we see the theme of God as provider continues throughout the Bible. This passage from Psalms would be just one quick example. It's from Psalm 104. It says, you make the springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. And the high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. So through that and throughout the Bible, we see this theme of provision. God providing for his, his creation, for his people. And the work of God as provider culminates for us in the work of Christ. After the fall, what was our greatest need? It was, it was the need for a Savior, and God provided that for us. So again, we see God working on behalf of creation, on the behalf of his people. And let's look at Ephesians uh, chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. That's a work of God, together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up, more evidence of God's work with him, 
and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ, Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Finally, we see God's uh, God working. We see God working for us, creating it, providing for us. We also see him commissioning workers to carry on, carry out his work in the earth. Genesis 1:28 it says, "And God said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth." And in Genesis 2:15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is where we find the origin, the roots of, of human work. God prepared a beautiful garden for Adam and Eve. It was perfect in every way. There were rivers, birds in the air, grassy fields, flowers, trees, animals running around. There were trees for food. There were plants for food. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. It was a perfect place to live. And it had everything that Adam and Eve would need to live on it, to, to survive and to thrive. But when God placed them in the garden, what were his instructions? He didn't tell them just to hang out all day. They weren't to spend the days lounging on the beach or just to go find a hammock in, some, in, a, in the shade of a tree somewhere. They weren't to spend the day hiking and biking and fishing, skiing or, or playing. And I don't have anything against all of those. I enjoy almost every one of those things. They just weren't part of what God's instructions to Adam and Eve were. They were to spend their days doing this, being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. I don't know that I could consider that work, but that was part of what they were instructed to do. But they were also to subdue and to have dominion over the earth. God placed them in the garden to work it. Gardens need work. Many of you have gardens. I've been to your homes. I've seen them. I've heard you talk about them. I've seen you bring in your produce here. But how many of you had gardens that just take care of themselves? I don't see any hands going up. Gardens don't do that by themselves. They need to be worked. You have to till the soil in the fall. You have to plant the seeds. You have to, to water those seeds. You have to stake up the plants as they grow. We have tomatoes, and if you don't stake up a tomato plant, it just falls over. Bean plants, other things, they need to be staked up and supported. They need to be cared for. In the fall, the vegetables just don't fall off and end up on your dinner plate. They need to go out and harvest them. You go out and pick those and prepare them. So if you're going to have a garden, you're going to have to work that garden if you want it to continue to flourish and produce for you. John Piper says this. He says, if you are God, your work is to create out of nothing. If you are human... Your work is to take what God has made and to shape it and to use it for good purposes. So we are left with this truth as we read through the early chapters of Genesis that work was a part of paradise. There was work to be done in the Garden of Eden. God's plan, his good plan, and he says actually his very good plan has always included men and women working. Or more specifically, men and women living in the constant cycle of work and rest. Work did not enter into the picture as a part of the fall. It was there before the fall. It was there when God created humans, when he created the garden and put them in it. 
So work has always been a part of God's perfect design for human life. Humans created in God's image. And that image includes work. Timothy Keller writes this. He says, It, in reference to work, was part of God's perfect design for human life. Because we were made in God's image, and part of His glory and happiness is that He works, as as does the Son of God. According to the Bible, we don't merely need money from work to survive. We need the work itself to survive and to live fully human lives. So we shouldn't see work as something that's evil or necessary or a punishment for our sins. Work is part of the blessings of God. Work is as much a human need for us as is food and rest and sleep, friendship and prayer. Without meaningful work, we should feel an emptiness or an inner loss. It is something that we can take in significant amounts without harming ourselves. So where does, God, where does work originate? It originates with, with God. Let's look now at second point, dignity of our work. Work has dignity because it's something that God does and because we do it in God's place as his representatives. All work, regardless of what you do, whether it be a doctor, a lawyer, a farmer, a banker, a maid, a gardener, a mother, a father, a chef, a trench digger, it doesn't matter. Consider for a moment what God would like. Would consider for a moment what God would be like if He came to the earth and worked. If you were an ancient Greek, you would probably think of God or expect God to come as a philosopher or a king. The ancient Romans would have been looking for a God who was a just and noble statesman. But you know what? God did come to earth and work. He came into the world, and it wasn't as a philosopher. It wasn't as a king or statesman. How did God come? He came in the form of Jesus Christ as what? A carpenter. Simple physical labor, the work of a mother caring for her family or a CEO of a large company that employs thousands of people is all God's work. So we find dignity in working because God, work gives us the opportunity to glorify God. And how does this happen? Well, Wayne Grudem suggests that our work glorify God, glorify glorifies God in a number of ways. Let's take a look at a few of those. The first one, work gives us the privilege of creating something new in imitation of God's creativity. When we work to create new things, we imitate God's, cre- God's creativity, creative activity as well. As his wisdom, his skill, his intelligence. It, and isn't it true that we have somewhat lost the wonder of all of this? Imagine with me for the moment this morning, what if Adam and Eve were to come in this morning and participate in our, in our church service? What would they think as they looked around and, and, and saw what, what they would take in here? It would be far different than their experience was back in the garden. Take this water bottle, for example. Adam would say, what is that? Take a drink. I'd say, it's water, Adam. Are you thirsty? And he'd say, water? I mean, you don't have to go out to that stream out back and bend down and scoop up with your hand water in order to take a drink? No, Adam, we don't have to do that anymore. What's that thing that it's in? It's a plastic bottle, Adam. Where did you get that from? Well, it turns out that you can take oil 
and do some things to it and make clear plastic that we can then hold water in. How did you figure that out? How did you know how to do that? Well, Adam, God gave us the curiosity, the skill and the wisdom to know how to convert oil into plastic. Then Adam, just imagine Adam when he sees that and hears that. What would his response be? It would be, oh, praise God. Praise God that you don't have to walk down and drink out of that stream, bend down and drink out of that stream. Isn't God good to you? Who knew that that could be done? Or what about, this is Adam again, what about those things up there? What things, Adam? Those, those things up there that glow, that are hanging down from the ceiling. Are they stars? No, those are lights. What makes them, what makes them shine like that? Well, there was a guy named Thomas Edison, Adam, who figured out that you can take a piece of thread and burn it into, to, um, carbon and then apply some light to, uh, electricity to it and it would glow. Adam would think, how did you ever come up with that idea? You mean you can come into a building inside day or night and see? That's amazing. Well, God inspired Thomas Edison to do these things. We found that we can take a piece of carbon, apply electricity to it, and, and make light. What was Adam would just be floored again in awe of what humans had done with, under the inspiration and the direction of God through their work in creating and inventing. That would be incredible to Adam and to Eve. Consider the other things, the cars racing by out on the highway. You know what? They, didn't see, they saw a lot of animals in the garden, but they never saw anything run that fast. What would they think of that? What would they think of planes flying through the sky? What would they think about buildings like this made of steel and concrete? The furniture we have, refrigerators that can keep food cool, heaters, air conditioners, dishwashers, clothes washers, you name it. Think about what we have that they didn't have. and one, Imagine the awe and the wonder and the sense of gratitude and thankfulness that they would have in their hearts towards God. And we lose that sometimes. We take these things for granted. But these are wonderful things that humans have done in imitation of God to create and to invent. Adam would just be overflowing in his heart about God's goodness to us. And what a wonderful God that would put resources in the earth in order for us to create all of these wonderful things. So it's an amazing process when we create something new. And in doing that, whether it be creating paper from a tree, plastic from oil, glass from sand, whatever it may be, all of these things, when we do these things, we're imitating God's creativity. Now, we're never going to be the same as God. We can't create something out of nothing. But we create new things out of existing things. And in doing so, we imitate just a little bit and fulfill Ephesians 5.1. It says, be imitators of God. God is love. And He wants us to love each other. God is truth and He wants us to be honest with each other. God is faithful and He loves for us to be faithful to our spouses and to our commitments. God is merciful and wants us to show mercy. 
The same is true when it comes to work and to creativity. In multiple ways, we imitate God and we thereby show the world the excellence of our Creator and when we do so. We imitate Him on the earth and we represent Him on the earth by creating products. Whether it be baking a cake or growing a garden or designing a building or inventing some new product, our ability to create and to invent shows an important aspect of our human nature as it was created by God. And when we do that, we should give thanks to God when we see that taking place in our midst. Number two, work gives us the privilege of creating value also in imitation of God's creativity. So even when we don't create a brand new product, but when we work to make the same thing over and over and over and over again, we're still doing an amazing task of adding to the total value of the things that exist in the world. Several years ago, an, uh, the, the church and a number of families in the church were able to give uh, a financial donation to a ministry in South, Southeast Asia, and they used that money to buy sewing machines that then were given to some, some women who, now, who had no means of support. And these women, once they had these sewing machines, were able to take pieces of material, cloth, I don't know how much cloth costs in that, in that uh, country, but let's just say they could buy a piece of cloth for $2. They would then take that piece of cloth and sew it into a shirt or some other item. Then they could take those shirts down to the marketplace and sell them, and let's say they could get $10 for a shirt. And that's an amazing thing because each of those shirts, those ladies sewed, added $8 of value to that cloth that didn't exist prior to their, to their labor, to their work. So where did the $8 come from? It came from these women working and creating it. $10 didn't exist for that shirt. They took a $2 piece of cloth, added $8 of value to it, and were able to sell it for $10. New value was created in that process of these ladies working. And it applies not just to manufacturing, but to service industries as well. There's value added to the world through those who work as maids, teachers, doctors, mowing the grass. If you're a waiter in a restaurant, all your work, your service is adding value. It applies as well to the work of mothering and fathering and parenting children. Caring for children in homes adds value to the world by raising children who love the Lord and are trained in His Word and prepared to become members of society who will carry out the work of subduing and having dominion and creating and imitating God. So when God gives us work to do, we should be amazed by that and what we can accomplish through it. God made us so that our work adds value to the world and God is pleased in that because, again, in a faint way, it reflects and an image of God when He created the earth, the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Number three, work gives us the privilege of supporting ourselves in imitation of God's independence. First Thessalonians 4, verse 11 and 12, it says, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So when we, as parents, we should be pleased to see our children grow up, be able to support, get jobs and go to work and support themselves, give them a sense of dignity as they do that, and self-respect. So it's, this is another faint way in which we can imitate our God. And just a side note, while we 
We'll never become completely independent in the same sense that God is. We do become somewhat independent by working and providing for ourselves and for our families. Number four, God gives us the privilege of enjoying the fruits of our labor, again, in imitation of God's joy. Genesis 1, 31, it says, And God saw everything that he made. Behold, it was very good. That's a statement of joy and of accomplishment on God's behalf when he looked over what he created. At the end of the sixth day, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God took delight in what he had made. He enjoyed the fruits of his labor. So in imitation of God's delight in what he has done, he wants us to do the, the same thing and take delight in what we do. First uh, Timothy six seventeen says, For it is God who richly, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And when we enjoy the work of our labor, the fruits of our, of our labor, we do it with thanksgiving, not with pride in our accomplishments, but with thanksgiving for what we've been able to do. To do. We enjoy the fruits of the labor, and when we enjoy the fruits of our labor, we, we please God. So I like to work around my house, working on the woodwork, fixing things that are broken, making things better. And when I, I'm finished with a project, usually I can stand back and say, that's good. Sometimes it's not so good, and I do it again. Occasionally, I will stand back and look and say, wow, that's really good. I can't believe that I did that. Some of you who are new to Providence may not know that um, I haven't been a pastor for all of my career. I spent 25 years in the computer software industry before I came on staff here at, at Providence. And one of the last projects that I worked on in my computer software days was a, uh, a procurement system that, that automated and, and simplified the process of, of purchasing. So a big corporation needs to buy things. Factories need to buy things, raw materials and supplies and what have you. And the, the software I worked on developed, automated that, and helped them to simplify that process. It's a system that generated millions of dollars for the company that I worked for in, in sales and in consulting. And today, there are thousands of employees at Boeing who use that software. And, and I have a wonderful sense of accomplishments when I, when I consider that and what was accomplished with that. So to this day, when I see an F-18 or an F-15 fighter flying through the sky, when I see a C-17 cargo plane, these are all Boeing products, by the way, when I see a Chinook helicopter or an Apache helicopter, when I see the V-22 Osprey or I hear about a precision-guided bomb blowing something up in the world, I, I, I know that my work, my efforts, the software that I helped develop went into helping to create those wonderful machines, and I take a sense of pride when I, when I hear about those things or when I see those things. I take joy and delight in knowing that my work helped produce those things. New moms. We've got a lot of new moms in the congregation here. We've had a flourish of babies in the last few months. Your work may be nothing more than nursing your child changing their diapers, and trying to get a shower in during the day. If you come to the end of the day and you've accomplished that, you have been successful in your day, and you should take joy and, 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 and a sense of accomplishment in that. You've worked. Your child has been cared for. It's been well fed. You got yourself cleaned up. It's been a good day. Take a sense of 
of accomplishment in that. Okay. Number five. Work gives us the privilege of doing good for one another in imitation of God's love. Matthew twenty two thirty nine says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. God made us all different. Have you noticed that? We're not clones. We're all different. Different skills, different preferences. And this leads us to specialize in different activities. Not everybody's a doctor. Not everybody's an engineer. Not everybody's a salesman. Not everybody's a pastor. Not everybody is, I'm looking around here to see an architect. What else is we got in here? We got a lot of things in here. That's good. That's the way it should be. That's the way God created us to be unique and different. Give us all different skills and, acti- and, and ta- skills and talents. And that makes the human race much more productive than if we were all doing the same thing. God made us different to have different interests and skills so that our productivity will be multiplied many times over. If you're familiar with how basic economics, if you've taken Economics 101 in college, you'll understand how that works. When one person specializes in making shirts, another grows vegetables or fruits, and another prints books or builds cars, homes, computers, beds, shoes, ovens, so on and so forth, it creates a huge human network of interdependency in human interrelationships. In order to succeed in this kind of connected society, people need to produce what other people want. So in other words, if we want to serve others, if we want to love our neighbors ourselves, we need to produce things that they want, whether it be a service or a product. If you open a really nice Thai food for exa- uh, restaurant in Johnson County, for example, and nobody likes Thai food, your restaurant's not going to stay in business very long. Sadly, this seems to be the case around here. I know that because Pam and I love Thai food and get very excited when we see a new Thai food restaurant open up. And chances are, if we went in there, which we often do, we would be the only ones or there would be very few other people. And it seems like not a lot of people in Johnson County just love Thai food like we do. So needless to say, after a few months, these restaurants that we loved and enjoyed and looked forward to would often be out of business and just gone. Who remembers 8-track tape players? (laughs) The older ones of us. Or the Sony Betamax tape players. Or how about black and white TVs? Or or telephones that actually have a wire that comes out of them that plugs into a wall. There's still a few of those around, but a lot of us are probably, you know, some of the younger kids may may have never seen those. You've got to build and make and manufacture things and services that people want. So when you do that, when we do that, it creates business transactions that are a way of loving our neighbor as ourself. That's because voluntary business transactions ordinarily bring benefit to both the buyer and the seller. If I go down to Goodyear this afternoon and I need a new set of tires, I can take $300 or so, go down to Goodyear, And I will give them my $300 and they will give me a set of tires. And as I go home and driving home, I'm going to feel like I'm better off because I have two new tires on my car rather than $300 in my pocket. So what Goodyear has done has benefited me. It's made my life better. 
the people who work for Goodyear, who manufacture those, those tile, tires, who put them on and install them, they have all improved my situation in life. When we, when we see these types of things happening, does that amaze us? It doesn't. I'm not amazed as much as I, I should be. It's an amazing thing when we see transactions like that taking place. Turns out, though, that Goodyear is equally happy. They wanted my money more than they wanted those tires. After all, what are they going to do with hundreds and hundreds of tires in their warehouse? They were happy to take my $300 to put into their cash register. So by purchasing those tires from Goodyear, I have done good to Goodyear and to all the employees of Goodyear. So in this way, we see these things taking place. A voluntary business transaction like these does, does good to both parties. It's a win-win scenario. And in a small way, it helps us to fulfill the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So as you go to work, whatever that may be, I encourage you to consider this question. How am I loving my neighbor as myself in my work? We do good for our neighbor when we go to work because we bring them benefit. How do we know we bring them benefit? We know that because they will bring, bring money and exchange their money for what we have to offer. That shows that they value what we have to offer. Last point this morning, I just want to spend some time talking about work and our relationship with God. Because it's, it's an area where we can, uh, if we're not careful, fall into some bad theology and doctrine. So let me start with this. Our relationship with God. God's declaration over us as forgiven and justified is based on the work of Christ and Christ alone. Any other understanding of that is just wrong. Ephesians 2.8 says, For the, by the grace of for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. This passage seems simple and straightforward to us. It fills us with hope. I don't have to earn my salvation. I don't have to earn God's favor. It brings relief to tired and weary souls. It humbles us. It fills us with gratefulness. It gives us a reason come this morning, to come to other times in our lives, as I, my quiet times in the morning, prayer times as, as care groups, family time, gives us a time, an opportunity, gives us reason to come and to thank God and to worship Him and honor Him. Get in our lives through our thoughts, our actions, our decisions, what motivates us often doesn't reflect this truth. It's easy to drift into the mentality that, may, that my good deeds, my actions, my efforts, my work, that these things are what uh, earns us acceptance before God. And by doing those things, and I do those things well, that God is pleased and, it deserve, and that I deserve God's favor because of it. All too often we view our works this way. It's what I do and my job or vocation that leads to God being happy with me or not happy with me. This is not the case, though. It never has been and it never will be. God is happier pleased with you as we are in Christ and have been made one with him through Christ. So a little bit of church history here for you. Sad thing happened as many New Testament teachings began to shift as the church moved toward the, the first millennium and into the period of the time we know as the Middle Ages. The understanding of vocation and how it impacted lives began to shift 
the message of the gospel and the message of grace that went with it began to shift. The religious leaders of the period began to despise the world, creation, and material things. The teachings and the theology of the church began to contradict the teaching of Scripture that we were made right with God solely by God's gracious act through faith in Christ. So in short, what was happening was that the church was giving up the gospel. There were a number of factors that contributed to this shift that were occurring that I don't have time to go into this morning. Suffice it to say that during the Middle Ages, we ended up with a church that believed and taught that creation, nature, and material things were believed to be the dominion of Satan. The present world was evil and had to be rejected. True Christians, therefore, were only interested in the world to come and how to get there. So what developed was a division between the clerics and the everybody else, and the, uh, the clerics and the people. And it became known as the religious or the non-religious, or maybe you know it as the, cleric, the clerics and the laity. Godly vocations or callings were limited to full-time church workers, such as priests or nuns. So if you wanted to be about the Lord's work, young boys entered the priesthood or became monks or went on a crusade. A truly pious young lady would enter a convent and become a nun. The everyday, ordinary jobs that employed most members of society were recognized as necessary occupations, but they were not recognized as godly occupations. So they were considered worldly occupations, so the farmers, the the, uh, laborers, the bakers, the shopkeepers, the seamstresses, the blacksmiths, the word workers, the soldiers, the government workers, and such. The church did teach that these people could be saved, but it was believed that to serve God fully and to live a spiritual or holy life, a full-time commitment was required to the church. So meanwhile, and in unison with this transition about work and a breakdown of, of the understanding of vocation, the gospel itself was being distorted, the biblical idea of justification was lost, the concept of imputation was misapplied, And slowly, but gradually, the focus of the gospel shifted from God onto us. You work together with God, but you work with God to receive salvation and forgiveness before God. The quality of your works, the kind of job you had, the intensity of your piety, these all became crucial factors in determining whether you were righteous enough, holy enough, and good enough to merit the forgiveness eternal life, and salvation. So what developed out of this was what Carter Lindbergh calls the Avis mentality of religion. Again, those of you that have been around for a long time, remember Avis used to have an ad that says, at Avis, we try harder. They were the number two car rental company at the time, and that ad was meant to imply that because we're not number one, we're going to try harder and harder to earn your business. So let's take that that thought, that... that um, Advertising slogan, apply it to the gospel. So that with the Avis mentality applied, when you are unsure about your standing before God, you try harder and harder and harder. It all depends on you. And it created a climate in which people lived in terror of God and His anger and His punishment. They feared the Lord's return and judgment. Consciences were chronically troubled. And peace with God became a hoped-for goal, not an everyday experience. It was into this environment of corrupt and distorted theology that God raised up the reformers, men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and so forth. 
As these individuals took their Bibles and began to study God's Word, they realized that priests and nuns had no biblical basis for their claim that's a special favor from God. Reformers made a claim, and it was a radical claim at the time, that all Christians could live the Christian life to the fullest. This newfound priesthood of all believers did not attempt to marginalize or denigrate the office of pastor or to teach that full-time church workers were unnecessary. Reformers simply taught that the occupation of pastor or church worker was a calling from a God that had its own set of responsibilities, but they also taught that all Christians had a vocation or calling from God that was equally valued, equally important, and each had, had its own set of responsibilities and authority. So the, the Reformers were careful to caution Christians not to confuse their role of, of work in their salvation. They made it clear that we were not to come to God trusting in our work. We come to God as sinners. Receiving the gift of forgiveness is the only way to salvation. Gene Edward Veith writes this. He says, The priesthood of all believers did not make everyone into church workers. Rather, it turned every kind of work into a sacred calling. Every kind of work, including what had heretofore been looked down upon, the work of the peasants and the craftsmen, is an occasion for priesthood, for exercising a holy service to God and to one's, one's neighbor. So questions that we have to answer. Who am I? Where did I come from? What's the purpose and meaning of, of life? These are questions that we all ask at some time during our lives. We have to come to grips with them. The scripture is clear in who we are in God's eyes when left to ourselves. The bad news first. Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's how God sees us outside of Christ when we're left to our own. So here we are, sinful people who fall short when compared to the glory of God. You're separated from Christ, alienated from God, without hope and without God, object of His wrath, subject to His judgment and deserving death. But the Gospel... The work of Jesus Christ changes all that. There are a number of truths in the gospel that I wanted to share with you just quickly here as we close. Number one, our salvation begins with God. God took the initiative while we were yet sinners. And God loved the world. God so loved the world. And we were dead in our sins. All of those are God taking the initiative. Our involvement is simply a response, a response to what God had already done. And our response is called faith, which works itself out in love for God. So faith, faith, however, to be effective, depends not on the one who believes, that would be us, but on the one in whom we believe, namely Jesus Christ. You can have unswerving faith in your baseball team, but if they are a team of losers, you are always going to be rooting for losers no matter how much faith you have in them, your faith is not going to make them into winners. In this case, the object of your faith will always let you down from time to time. Christ, though, will never let you down. 
if our faith is in Christ and Christ alone, we will always be rooting for a winner. Finally, God acts freely out of his love for us and his gifts of mercy. Freedom, peace, and forgiveness are by grace. That is, they are the result of God's free and undeserved favor towards us. We don't earn God's gifts. We can't earn God's gifts by our works. They are what the Bible calls gifts. And we don't, we don't earn gifts. They are given to us out of kindness, out of love, care, compassion from, from the giver. So justification, our justification before God is by faith, not our work. We work to imitate God. We work to reflect His image. But we don't work to earn His favor and we don't work to earn salvation. Forgiveness is God's gift to us. It's not a reward for human efforts. Freedom and peace with God comes to us because of Christ's work. As we sang this morning, by Christ alone. Not because of any good work that we have done. For grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Let's pray.